What's up, everybody? Welcome back to Nuclear Barbarians. It is I, your Nuclear Barbarian. And for those of you that have been following me since the days of my old exhaust podcast, RIP, I have got some great news. I feel like garbage today. I didn't get enough sleep. I don't think I've had enough water. And I had to take a bunch of notes and do a bunch of readings. And you know what that means. That means John is back in <laughs> the saddle with me. And we are doing a reading series again. What is up, John? Yeah, somehow I just, I knew without knowing. And I drank a lot of coffee right before sitting down. And I feel Bro, bad. same. Yeah, dude, <laughs> same. This is, this is, okay. So for those of you that aren't in on this joke, when John and I launched Exhaust during COVID many moons ago, this was this was the running gag, is that every time he and I were excited about doing something, we would wake up the day after record and just feel awful. It's and not then, even really a joke because it happened every time. <laughs> yeah, it happened like every time. Yeah, it's sort of amazing. So we are back. Um, when I had Spencer Clavin on, go back and listen to that episode. It was a great time. One of the pieces of feedback I got is that people really liked how much it felt like a synthesis of what was going on at Nuclear Barbarians and what had happened on Exhaust, which was a podcast about why nothing feels possible, and really tried to delve into difficult, obscure, sometimes corners of history, philosophy, culture, and even energy and industrial stuff. And I was like, you know, I do miss doing that stuff. And John and I had been sort of like talking about how we missed working on stuff together. And there were, or there were a few books that we didn't get to that we thought might be uh, a great fit for nuclear barbarians in terms of energy, energy history, all of that stuff. And so we wanted to sort of revitalize the reading series, at least for the book we're going to talk about today to see if it was workable again, and we could have fun doing that because we enjoyed it so much last time. So we are going to be looking at Leo Marx's foundational American studies book called The Machine in the Garden, Technology and the Pastoral Ideal in America. So John, have you ever heard of this book before I suggested it as one of the ones we were going to get into? I heard of it like extremely vaguely like it was one of those things where i saw it in like a book list or something or someone mentioned mm -hmm. it to me and i was like oh that looks cool and like disregarded it for 10 years until you yeah. brought it up again totally so for people who don't know leo marx was one of the forerunners one of the founders really of american studies in the um, early mid 20th century Guys like Perry Miller, who wrote an errand into the wilderness and did a series of books uh, called like American Transcendentalism or the Puritan Mind or all of these things. These were guys who were trying to take a look at the American project through a very specific cultural lens, what would end up being called the Myth and Symbol School of American Studies. And it died almost as soon as it was born. It had maybe like a 10 to 15 year shelf life. We'll include a link to an essay that Leo Marx himself wrote, where he talks about what happened to American studies as it hit the 60s, where he and the other founders who were mostly enlightenment guys who 
were either socialists or New Dealers or at least some variant of progressive or something like that really took seriously the principles laid out in the Constitution. But the post-colonial turn in the 60s and 70s basically buried a lot of their project almost immediately. From what I understand, that might not be an exact history of how it goes. I don't know if people still read this in American studies. I know people who've done American studies and have never heard this come up uh, anymore. And I think Leo Marx's period is looked back on with some embarrassment almost for being wrongly so, almost like a type of reactionary nationalism or patriotism. But these were really people who took seriously the specificity of American culture and who, and perhaps this is a problem for a field of academic study, quote unquote, believed in America. So he talks about that in an essay where he does like a whole sort of capsule history of that. But this book which really takes on certain themes in American culture around industry and nature from the 1600 onwards, especially after the mid-period of the 19th century, is, I think, a great way to anchor ourselves in the river that we're standing in, in the arguments over America's relationship to technology and the natural world. There is a lot of really important stuff he gets into here. He spends a lot of time with people like Emerson and stuff like that. And anybody who knows environmental history knows that Emerson and Thoreau and Buckminster Fuller had a huge impact on people like Stuart Brand of the Whole Earth Catalog and all of these people who come out of the 60s and 70s that shaped our digital culture and have also shaped the paradigm through which we even think about energy today. So think about this as like deep, deep background, because this book comes out really before the environmental movement gets going. So it happens at almost the perfect time to be like this pre-historical cultural essay on these themes in America and American life. So that's why we're going to dig into this one. And I think we're excited about it. We read the first few chapters today. We are going to be going through this book, maybe not chapter by chapter, though some of them get long. So we'll probably have to do it just like that. But this will be just like the exhaust reading series. And for people who don't know, that is when John and I go through the book cover to cover and try to bring out the most important nuggets to you, the listener, for things to think about and hopefully to encourage you to pick up the book yourself and come up with your own ideas. Not everybody has time for that. And not everybody wants to do that. So think about this as just an invitation to step into these fertile, rich ideas, tensions, contradictions that help us situate ourselves today. So with the sort of apologia for this project out of the way, let's crack this bad boy open and talk about the opening chapter, which is called Sleepy Hollow. 1844. I found this to be a very surprising chapter, the way it opened. How about you, John? Yeah, it was, I guess, in an immediate sense, I could identify with Nathaniel Hawthorne. It opens up and basically the whole chapter is about Nathaniel Hawthorne sort of traipsing over to some hamlet somewhere. I'm not really sure 
he calls it Sleepy Hollow. And he just plops down to like watch people go about their day in this sort of like picturesque village type area and jot down his thoughts about what he sees happening before him. So it's a place like equal parts of trees and stuff, as well as like houses and people. And the whole thing is kind of set up so that he ends up almost in like a blissful, like opioid reverie of just like, wow, this is so peaceful and serene and nice, except in like better prose <laughs> than, than what I just said. Not like a washed up ex-stoner. Yeah, yeah. And then, but you know, eventually he hears a train whistle and like a train come in from the distance that just sort of erupts into that serenity and kind of destroys his sense of well-being for a moment. Mm -hmm. and he ends up coming to a kind of forlorn resolution of like, I'm back in, in the pastoral idol, you know, like the whole mm -hmm. sort of the theme of this book. However, it's not the same as it used to be after like the train and the noise of the engine kind of being sort of physically arresting and then also, mm -hmm. you know, like interrupting the train of thought. So he, he talks about this, but then he says, basically, if you look at any American writer or honestly, too, he brings up some British examples. Mm -hmm. You will find this exact thing like over and over and over again in various forms. And you, that you find like it in Moby first. Dick. Yeah, you yeah. Find, it, find it in Huckleberry Finn. I'm reading Life on the Mississippi right now. You find it in the education of Henry Adams, The Great Gatsby, Greats of Wrath, et cetera, et cetera. It is this dominant theme or moment that happens in American literature that seems like this foundational myth and symbol of something we're reckoning with as a nation. Right. And I, it was interesting. Like I have experienced this myself. I don't know about you, but like mm -hmm. there have been lots of times where I come from, it's you know, a city, but there's a lot of nature. There's a lot of natural areas, quote unquote, that you can go hang out in and kind of not feel like you're in a city because it's not really that much of a city. But there, you know, you'd be sitting there and you'd be like, this is kind of not, you know, like I'm getting romantically wrapped up in the, the, the idols here. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. And then suddenly like some fucking motorcycle like comes by and you're just like, it's, I would be hurt, you know, like launches you out of what you were. It's an experience that you can have even today, I guess is what I'm trying to say. What was just mm -hmm. kind of interesting to me is like the automobile kind of still functions in these settings. And the same way the train did, at least in a very like, you know, firsthand experiential kind of way. Like it's, it's still No, I real. think that's absolutely true. My, my childhood is dotted with experiences of hanging out and sort of the, the, the barrens on either side of the prairie path mm. cutting through suburban Illinois. Cause for like, mm -hmm. you know, over 25 miles or something like that. And even biking through it where you just feel like you're in this lush sort of environment and then all of a sudden you're happening upon a dilapidated and defunct Ovaltine factory in the next town over, which is something right. that loomed large as a place where you figured monsters lived or something like that as, as, as a kid. So I think that, that, it, that it's still here. One of the things that I just want to point out is that he pulls from Hawthorne's journals to talk about this moment. And why this moment's significant, even if it's just a Chinese journal thing, and then finds an almost identical section 
from Ralph Waldo Emerson's journals. It is, it is almost eerie. It is like too perfect. And what he wants to do by doing this isn't to just to point out and say like, oh yeah, and then there's like technology and we have to deal with that. What he wants to do is sort of like put together um, a pattern or a design, as he calls it, um, about the pastoral. The pastoral coming from Virgil, and John's going to talk a little bit about that in a second, but really you see the pastoral arrive in contradistinction to the city. It is not necessarily the uh, violent, untamed wilderness, though maybe it is, and we'll talk about that in a little bit too, um, but something else that offers an escape valve from the, let's say, stressors and chaos and perhaps even corruption of city life. And one of the things that he wants to say is that the particularly American thing that's happening here, not that it didn't happen in England, but the way in which the train brings the city into the country and is sort of this interpenetration. And that they're going to be what he calls later on in this book, two kingdoms of force, one being the garden and one being the machine. And that so much of the American identity and so much of American culture is the way in which these kingdoms of force collide, both in our psyches and in the physical world around us. But I think we should step back even further into the past and sort of talk about Virgil a little bit, who he sees as sort of the progenitor, is that the right word, of the pastoral ideal, at least in the West. Yeah. He points out that Virgil's not the first pastoral author, but that for American literature, he's the most important. And I think I would agree with that, like just in terms of effect. And also, you know, there are, there are others as well, but Virgil, I think it was interesting because we spent time mostly with the first eclogue, not really much else. He just kind of uses it to illustrate that the kind of spatial setup in Virgil's first eclogue is that you have Rome, the city, you have a kind of chaos enveloping the countryside, the background of which would be people being unlanded and veterans being landed during the time of Augustus, who had to give the people who fought for him land to some extent to keep their loyalty and to reward them for their service and maintain control of the vast armies that were now kind of the entire force of his state, like sort of holding it together in a way, as well as his personal gravitas. So there's a guy who basically has to leave his land and everything he's ever known. And there's another guy who's sort of reposing in his farm in a very extremely Roman way. So there's between the chaos and the city, there's the space. And that is like the sort of actual peaceful area. Mm -hmm. And it's, you know, the guy he has animals and he's kind of doing a shepherding thing. And perhaps there's like some kind of crop farming going on there. It's not super clear. I feel like when I was reading Pliny the Younger's letters earlier this year, it comes up a lot. Actually reading Horace too. Horace is great mm. because Horace, he's like the most confessional ancient author I've ever read. Mm. He'll often be like, you know, every time I'm in the countryside, I miss being in Rome, but I went in Rome, I miss the countryside. Like he can't make up his mind. He's kind of a little <laughs> hypocritical. He feels like very immediate and kind of modern. And I think 
Hmm. Everyone who's read him kind of has the same experience where they say like, as many ancient authors as you can read and admire, like Horace feels like he could be your friend in a way that none of the others ever do. There's a sort of intimacy with Horace mm. in his writing that even seems to come through for me in translation. But it's kind of like a major literary theme of Roman literature that we possess is that life in the country is easy and safer than life in Rome because everyone who's writing is more or less a part of the political class. And depending on when exactly you live, like life in Rome may or may not present certain political dangers that could threaten your life, uh, especially once you're in the, you know, the actual time of the empire. But even before when the Republic gets extremely chaotic and violent to the point where senators are like traveling with armaments, whatever they're mm -hmm. going about in the city. But so away from all that, you have the farm or the little estate or whatever as seen as kind of self-sufficient in a way like you don't have to do that much work probably because you have slaves so anyways basically life in the country lacks the excitement and maybe the sort of intrinsic feeling of like effect on the world that life and the political life in rome had however it also lacked danger the immediate danger to your person of being in the political life in rome and also something which he touched on less, but I always found to be kind of a big aspect of people talked about this stuff is life in the country also lacks a certain element of like vanity, which I don't know if the Romans would use that word. That's way more of a medieval thing, but like there is a certain element of like the political shoulder rubbing kind of like mm -hmm. all the dinners. And if you read the younger he like lambasts someone for serving the wrong food you know he's I, like you see this in the letters of seneca to his friends where he's like you need to not be paying attention to this stuff right you know but like the, you need to was... not be worried about all this court intrigue and all the fashion and all the man like this is so less important than other things and it's so heavily developed and overdeveloped and stylized and according to taste and fashion and all of this stuff was it's something I think we can relate to a little in some way. It's not that different from anything that goes on today in that world. Mm -hmm. But so also retreating to the country was retreating away from that kind of vanity. And I think one of the reasons for that, it was something that maybe will come up later, but I thought it was interesting, was not a part of this book in particular, was that the countryside was seen for a long time, especially when people were very conscious of the fact that they were living in decadent times as like the final place in which virtue could find a home. Virtuous Absolutely. men are not going to be raised in Rome. Virtuous men will be killed in Rome. Like the conditions in Rome are so decadent often in the minds of all, you know, like virtue is a countryside thing. And the reason for that is often tied up into the fact that material wealth was seen as basically innervating the soul you can see it a lot i forget which plenty it was it might have been plenty of the elder but there's a whole thing about the amount of gold that came into rome as a result of the eastern conquests mm -hmm. and basically just listing like here is the sort of opulent crazy decadent shit people are doing like <laughs> alexander the great had like a golden statue that was like this but that's not even good enough for people today they <laughs> yeah, have golden right. statues that are like this like this is how bad it's gotten 
it's kind of complaining about that as a sort of common feature of Roman literature after a certain point. There is a certain background of the countryside. It reminded me of a passage from Plutarch, which I was like, oh, we, we should just read this because I yeah, think it's it. it so much better than I ever could. It's in his life of Cato the Elder, and it's in the, the second section. But he says, Near his fields was the cottage which had once belonged to Manius Curius, a hero of three triumphs. To this he would often go, and the sight of the small farm and the mean dwelling led him to think of their former owner, who, though he had become the greatest of the Romans, had subdued the most warlike nations and driven Pyrrhus out of Italy, nevertheless tilled this little patch of ground with his own hands and occupied this cottage after three triumphs. Here it was that the ambassadors of the Samnites once found him seated at his hearth cooking turnips and offered him much gold, but he dismissed them, saying that a man whom such a meal satisfied had no need of gold, and for his part, he thought that a more honorable thing than the possession of gold was the conquest of its possessors. Mm, mm. So I, I just want to sort of lay a little seed here that after the two chapters that we're discussing today, we're going to get into some of what Thomas Jefferson was thinking. And anybody who's familiar with Tom Jefferson's thought knows that that type of thinking is very attractive to him despite right. his own life at Monticello. <laughs> Just avoid him not tilling the ground and eating turnips. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and like what and how that how that might work and how, you know, we get these Republican ideas of virtue and these yeoman farmer ideals from the Romans were direct inheritors of them. And you can see it in the correspondence between the founding fathers, between what people thought about George Washington, for example, and how he just retired to his farm life and didn't form military dictatorship, seemingly to the world's surprise, because it's usually what happened after a colony freed itself, and how noble people thought that was, and not for no reason, obviously. But this is all to say that the reason why Virgil is going to be, in Leo Marx's estimation, a foundational writer for Americans in this way is for the reason that I just laid out. It is our direct inheritance from Rome and how Rome loomed so large in the minds of the founding fathers and their peers and how it continues to loom in our own conceptions, even today, all these centuries later. Right. So, and I think like an aspect of that, which is interesting is that most of the Romans reading and writing about pastoral virtue were themselves living on very large latifundia that were mm -hmm. many magnitudes greater than even like many American plantations. But still, this was sort of like a cultural back pocket thing of like, even though I'm extremely innervated and living in these horrible times, like that's still the ideal that I hold things up to so that I can understand that I am living in bad times where mm -hmm. I'm not looking around and thinking, oh, this is fine because they're like if you really want to get into it go read like the first collection of Pliny's or sorry not Pliny Livy's books the history mm -hmm. of Rome all the early stuff because it's essentially like however society was back then and Livy they're all small farmers probably more or less true outside of the city they go into the city for politics but everybody 
goes home at the end of the day to their farm, more or less plowing it themselves because they don't yet have like mass slavery from all over the Mediterranean. Mm-hmm. And it creates the idea of a certain kind of man, the kind of man you're talking about Jeffersonianism, if not Jefferson will, will embody. And it, the relationship, I think, or even the Romans themselves was really complicated in a way that it has similarly been for us with obviously everything that comes with being American, but yeah, I mean, no, there's I a think lot that's more that could be said about Virgil, the fact that he kind of occupied or a tense position as more or less the state pope. Um, while not, one could read Virgil and find moments where it's really uncertain how much he supports Augustus in everything he does, but the way in which he makes that known is fairly subtle if you believe it's being made known. But there's always that aspect as well because Virgil is a part of a cultural program that is being undertaken by Augustus and his cultural czar. I forget his name right now, but basically they're bankrolling poets and asking them to write things at times. And the eclogues are a part of Augustus's sort of moral campaign to like bring people back to Roman virtue and to feeling like, you know, these are the best people, like the countryside is the best, like farming there, be a good Roman, be like Manius Curious, like, Mm -hmm uphold these virtues, get married, have children, like all this kind of stuff. So it's also in the context of being extremely, I think, intentional and didactic to some extent, but how much Virgil is playing in a space between having his own things to say and having to say certain things is up for debate and not something we can really get into, but I think it's an interesting aspect of interpreting him and his, his effect now. Yeah. And I think as we go through this and we start to deal with writers like Twain or Melville who have their own subversive things to say about what's happening in America, Huckleberry Finn was not greeted as an instant classic. Believe me, Mm -hmm. it was treated very differently than the way we treat it now. And it is still controversial to us today. So you can only imagine what it was like in the wake of the Civil War uh, to read that book. So what we see here is spelled out in, in, in Virgil is a theme, again, these two kingdoms of force we're going to talk about, and the idea of this counterforce in it. So in Virgil, you sort of have the dispossessed man and the man sort of in repose in, in the pastoral idol, and that when they confront each other, when they discuss, these things are suddenly thrown into tension. And he writes, this is Leo Marx now saying, we should understand that the counterforce may impinge upon the pastoral landscape, either from the side bordering upon the intractable nature or side facing the advanced civilization. So in other words, you have a deeper wildness that is untamed that can invade the pastoral realm, or you have, as he says, civilization. Nevertheless, he continues the term counterforce is applicable to a good deal of modern American writing. The anti-pastoral forces at work in our literature seem indeed to become increasingly violent as we approach our own time. For it is industrialization represented by images of machine technology that provides the counterforce in the American archetype of the pastoral design. So if Virgil's thing was this political strife and what's happening in war, ours is technological. That is what makes the tension with the pastoral. Um, 
Now, we could go even deeper here, but we still need to sort of move along. I just want to say that it is Marx's claim, Leo Marx, not Karl Marx, that these two things illuminate each other, that part of the frisson of their collision in American letters is the way in which the industrial world tells us more about nature and the natural world tells us more about our own civilization. And that this is an ongoing feedback loop through our entire national conversation from everything to what becomes environmentalism or was it first conservationism to how we talk about climate change today, but also to how we think about our relationship to the digital and the computer these days and what is or isn't natural. And what we see is a violation of our most deeply held intimate parts of maybe even the ideas of our soul and where these things intersect with each other. So that being said, we're going to move out of Sleepy Hollow into a very, the very fascinating second chapter, which is titled Shakespeare's American Fable. I found this one really surprising. It touched on things that John and I have, like, it turns out totally independently of each other dug into around sort of late Renaissance and Elizabethan travel diaries from various parts of the world. So I was wondering, John, if you could just sort of give a sketch of what you think is happening in this chapter, because I've been talking for a while. Yeah, no, I think importantly, when he's talking about Virgil, because the early part of the first chapter, you really get conceptualized basically that there is civilization and there is nature in popular American thought and they're oppositional to some extent. And nature just kind of collapses all of this sort of rural stuff into itself. And then you get civilization literally being like city life. And those are the two things that kind of stand against each other. And the train is sort of like the machine of the city blowing itself like through the walls of nature into the rural life. However, Virgil, he makes the point that it's a tripartite division. And it's kind of, as you said, more or less a gradient scale of wilderness mm -hmm. to cultivated wilderness, i.e. a farm or a shepherd with flocks and a feet. Like mm -hmm. man's art laid upon wilderness in some way that it's still very close to like the natural state versus the city. And that these things are all kind of existing in a more interesting and subtle tension with each other. So this mm -hmm. moves us into something that he's going to want to talk about with Shakespeare's The Tempest, which going into it, I was a little suspicious, but he did a great job. And, you know, thankfully didn't have any reason to be. But he points out that while Shakespeare never identifies the island in The Tempest as being anywhere near America, it's presumably like somewhere between Africa and Italy because of mm -hmm. the, the nature of the action in the play. But that right around the same time, there was a shipwreck in Bermuda and there was information about this, like reports from people who were shipwrecked that were available to him that he presumably, along with everyone else who was literate, would have been familiar with. Yes. And the action of the storm, the shipwreck, and then the conditions on the island feel really close that they must have been somehow informed by these reports, which brings into view the broader idea of somebody living in Elizabethan England about the new world and about the idea of like an untamed or uncivilized place in general. Like 
how does one think of that or the idea of like a raw nature versus civilized Europe? And just to interject here, I think we have to really appreciate, it is hard to imagine now, even today, like how population dense, especially England is. And at this time, it runs on a wood economy. Mm-hmm. And they, they are in the process of getting rid of most of their wilderness. It is only the advent of coal that ends up sparing English forests from the hatchet. And so most, so most of the land, the wild land, is in the process of being eliminated. It is something that the crown is very worried about. The cities are densely packed. Sure, England has its own pastoral tradition, but it doesn't have the wildness. What happens when people from Europe who are used to a certain level of urbanity and uh, population density confront something that to them, and in some cases, maybe to everyone, because there were just fewer people living in North America, like per square mile, untamed. What does that even mean? It is, we have to also remember that maps weren't even finished. Many of these people had no idea where they were even really going. So this is a shock to the eye. This information is very surprising to anyone who is receiving these travel diaries and publication. It's something I thought about when he brings up some lines from William's William Wordsworth, which mm. is just that the nature that Wordsworth is interacting with is like not the state of England, like during the reign of Alfred the Great, like when there were wolves, there were large tracts of uncultivated land. Mm-hmm. Like England over a certain process was kind of turned into like a giant park in terms of dangerous things being eliminated from the island. And I, so when people sort of look at romantic poets, especially in England versus a romanticism for a very different, more wild kind of nature and whether or not one has any experience with that, I think is interesting. And it's something that comes up as well because you get a very placid view of nature in England as a place you can just go sit where nothing bad will really happen to you. And I think that you kind of see that in England's response to industrialization artistically, which is, you have a lot of like, you have J.R.R. Tolkien, which is pretty famous as just like, Mm -hmm. there's a very machine nature dichotomy, but like the human art is not always bad either. And it's an interesting talk for another time, but you also Mm -hmm. have A. Milne and like Winnie the Pooh, which is very much (laughs) coming out of that, like the hundred acre wood, it's totally. A. Milne's own avowed like pantheism is yeah. sort of like it's all part of the response to that as well like kind of what they were seeing as the destruction of natural places Leo Marx brings up the famous satanic Mills line from William Blake mm-hmm. there's or you know like there's a lot of famous novels that are very rooted in the English countryside that are kind of like of a similar aim and level of readership to like you know, to kill a mockingbird or something is for Americans. Yeah. That are a part of like an English tradition, but it's very, in a way, different. And the level of danger and wildness, we'll say, we could even say chaos is a spoiler. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Is I think kind of the inherent difference. And it's, 
one of the main aspects of the Tempest is the fact that, you know, so the action of the play is like the royal family of, what is it, Naples or something? Yeah, Milan. Milan. Are shipwrecked and through a horrible storm that they're like, oh, we might all die. But they all end up shipwrecked, some of them separate from others on this island. And they immediately start reflecting on the nature of the island and have a variety of opinions on it. There's a great line about how it has everything, you know, you could ever want, except the ability to survive. <laughs> Which I thought, you know, there is a lot of, of in-depth to like very individual throwaway lines. There is, yeah. Considering what is the nature of this wild place. Shakespeare, as Leo Marx goes into, Shakespeare uses it to lay out different views of this new world and maybe have something to say about them. And for instance, in Gonzalo, who is seen as kind of a nice, but I would say in the play, sort of old and ineffective and doddering old man, at least by that point, but nonetheless, like a virtuous person who the main sort of character, Prospero and his daughter exiled from Milan during a mutiny, like, you know, he was overthrown by his brother. And they were put on a boat and essentially sent off to go die. But it was Gonzalo, the nice old man who at least gave them his books and tried to send them off in like the nicest fashion he could, which endeared him to Prospero. Mm -hmm. He lays out this idea, which, you know, it's very like, if I ruled this island, they just landed there. They just got shipwrecked. And the first thing he says is like, if I was king of this island, I would set up a land where no men worked. Everyone was completely idle. Nature gave its gifts. And all were simply satisfied and fed off the bounty of nature. There is no competition, no war. There will be no buildings, no blacksmiths, no metal, like no human art of any kind. And people will simply live in this kind of like static peace forever on the That's island. Edenic, yeah. Yeah. And he gets kind of made fun of for it by some of the other members of the courtly party who are saying, you know, like it is on its face a little bit naive to think this way. And he forgets that he sets himself up as king in this place with no distinctions. <laughs> yeah, I, I think so. Yes, we, we're starting to get immediately a lot of the like dichotomies or spectrums that Leo Marx wants to set up for what America is going to inherit as its identity as it continues to be settled through different ways of oncoming Englishmen and Europeans. And one of the things that is attention, even in the travel literature itself, is whether or not this is heaven or hell. Yeah. Because similar to Virgil, the men who come over, who are funded to come over and write these travelogues, also know that it has to be enticing for the reader so that it will invite them to continue this process of colonization that Queen Elizabeth wants to keep going. So they have to figure out how to split the difference between like propaganda um, and, and what they really, what they're really seeing. And again, we think Shakespeare is familiar with this because The Tempest is written within a few years of the permanent settlement of Jamestown in the mm -hmm. opening years of the 1600s. And I just want to say that we can, John and I were talking about this we can sort of compare some of what these guys say where they're just like, I just watched an Indian fill his boat with fish and he didn't even have to put a line out. 
Like this is crazy. The level of opulence that we can experience here is unlike anything that I've ever imagined. And also guys like in Bermuda who are like, this is an insane nightmare place that perhaps has potential, but is ultimately hostile in all of these ways. We can juxtapose that with um, some things I checked out in this other book called Into the White, The Renaissance Arctic and the End of the Image, which takes a look at the same canon of travel literature from the Elizabethan era. And there is Thomas Ellis, who in 1578 goes in Martin Frobisher's, one of his doomed voyages to the Northwest Passage. They leave Plymouth for Greenland. And Thomas Ellis writes, the storm increased, the ice enclosed us, so we could see neither land nor sea. The rigorousness of the tempest was such, and the force of the ice so great that the ice raced the sides of the ships Thus continued we all that dismal and lamentable night, plunged in this per perplexity, looking for instant death. Later in his journal, Ellis will try to draw and relay what an iceberg is to the reader. And they're almost like a silhouette drawing because he has no idea what he is looking at. This is a true waste. There is ambiguity of interpretation of what the Arctic means insofar as there is ambiguity of what is possible with representation at all in Protestantism, which is a huge fight in the Lutheran move away from the heavily iconographic Catholic Church, uh, which continued the tradition of iconography from its Orthodox forebears, who if anybody's ever been to an Orthodox church is wildly laden with images of saints and such. So there's a big debate about the relationship between truth and representation. Now, what does that have to do with what Leo Marx is talking about when we get to the American wilds? There is a similar, what is called a parallax. It's sort of like when you close one eye and something seems like it's at one angle and then open it and close the other and it's sort of at a different angle. That's sort of what we mean here is that they are not sure what they are even looking at when they look at this. And rather than saying they are two different things, what Leo Marx is going to say is that they are taken at once and sort of put on a spectrum in the Tempest between Prospero's incredible handling of magic, like the pure art he has cultivated while he has been out there, and then sort of Gonzalo's sort of Edenic vision and then perhaps what is embodied in the native quote-unquote savage Caliban, whose name borrows all the same letters for cannibal, and how he represents the sort of raw wildness, the sort of untamability at the heart of man. And this is a pendulum, Leo Marx describes it, that the action of the play swings through before finding resolution, not necessarily on either end of its axis, but actually just sort of hovering somewhere undecidable in the middle between these things as Prospero gives up his magic and certain other things happen. So that's sort of my reading of what's going on here in terms of what he's trying to talk about, about the reception of America through Shakespeare. Does that track for you? Yeah, I thought there's a lot of subtlety in The Tempest, like Cal is given some of the most sonorous lines, especially compared to the people, because a lot of Caliban's time in the play is with two drunk, like sort of fool type people. 
they're not of any account in the actual court. And they're just, but they have these visions of sort of like, oh, I'll become king. I'll kill Prospero. And Caliban's like, yes, I hate Prospero. I'll make you king. Like, just do what I say. But compared to the way that they speak, Caliban is given these really nice lines that are very mm -hmm. lyrical. And people mm -hmm. have pointed out, like, despite the fact that Prospero is acknowledged kind of by all to be this misshapen person who can never really be reformed. That's what Prospero concludes himself is that he tried civilizing Caliban and it was of no use. <laughs> Nonetheless, there's a tension there because he's in a sort of natural art. Mm -hmm. Music comes up a lot, which, which I'll get into in a minute. Yeah, there's the Gonzalan vision of a, basically ready to render its goods for nothing and no danger to you, the human being is kind of contrasted with, with by Leo Marx, the actual experience of Prospero, who shipwrecked with his daughter. He's all of his time when he was Duke of Milan, essentially studying the liberal arts and hiding away. And this is how he was able to be dethroned because he wasn't really, he had delegated all of his power to his brother, who what was practically true, true on paper by getting rid of him. So in Leo Marx's reading, Prospero's time on this island is him coming to terms with the fact that there's a certain level of responsibility required of you and that power needs exercise. And so what Prospero does is he finds an island, there's the witch Sycorax, Sycorax, and Caliban is her son, and she holds sway and is kind of just made out to be a, a vile figure. So what Prospero does is take this island and make it habitable through the fact that he can seemingly bind spirits to do his bidding and have wield all of these great sort of magical arts, the product of his learning and the fact that he got out of this power out of books, which mm -hmm. Gonzalo made sure that he had when he was exiled. So it's still a humble place. They still live in a single cell as he brings up occasionally. But nonetheless, it's not a completely wild place either. And it's all by the fact that Prospero exercises this ma magical art and makes Caliban do like physical labor, like <laughs> yeah. cut logs and do stuff like, like there is a certain level of civilization, which he's brought to this place, which made it a place in which they could live and kind of Leo Marx sees it as a place for The question that he kind of comes to with, which I, for me maybe was the most interesting part of the book so far, is what is the relationship between human art and nature? Because in the beginning, it operated on a pretty simple dichotomy that human mm -hmm. art and nature were something different from each other. And he brings up that in The Tempest, it's really not so clear. And he references part of A Winter's Tale where Two people are talking about flower gardens and one person says they'll only have wild flowers in their garden and never flowers that have been bred by human hands because they're the best. And the other person responds that like, essentially they see no difference between what human art accomplishes with flowers mm -hmm. and what nature is doing because human art is only a part of nature, which reminded me of a good book. I would recommend it to anybody, especially if you're interested 
and like Shakespeare or any of those authors, which is called The Elizabethan World Picture by E.M.W. Tilliard. Oh, it's you've told me about book, this one. Yeah. But it's like a, it's a classic. You just essentially use a ton of quotations from authors of that time to lay out the aspects of medieval culture that endured during the Renaissance, but often it would not be like unspoken, but like it's so, it's much the air you breathe that it's not mentioned as such. You find it only in other ways. But one of these things is an overarching sort of like macrocosm, microcosm idea where the human being and the universe or the cosmos exist in a state of reciprocity and they kind of mirror each other. They are different. They correspond, which is something that'll remain a famous form of thought in like astrological thinking, which sort of mm -hmm. makes up a lot of thinking at this time and during the middle ages. But there is a certain sense in which the primary like oppositional forces, I would say, could be seen as chaos and order. And it's something that comes up a lot in, in the book, The Elizabethan World Picture. There's, and it's a really famous speech. I was like, probably worth reading. It's Shakespeare and Troilus and Cressida when Ulysses gives the speech about degree. <clears throat> and I think of all the ones I could choose from the book, I, I thought it was the best, but so this is, this is Ulysses talking. The heavens themselves, the planets, and this center observe degree, priority, and place. Insister, course, proportion, season, form, office, and custom in all line of order. And therefore is the glorious planet's soul and noble eminence enthroned and speared amidst the other whose medicinable eye corrects the ill aspects of planets evil and posts like the commandment of a king. Son check to good and bad, but when the planets in evil mixture to disorder wonder, what plagues and what portents, what mutiny, what raging of the sea, shaking of the earth, commotion in the winds, frights, changes, horrors, divert and crack, rend and deracinate, the unity and married calm of the states, quite from their fixture, when degree is shaked, which is the latter to all high designs, the enterprise is sick. How could communities, degrees in schools and brotherhoods in cities, peaceful commerce from dividable shores, the primogenitive and due of birth, prerogative of age, crowns, scepters, laurels, but by degree stand in authentic place. Take but degree away, untune that string and harp. Each that meets steer a pugnant. Bounded waters should lift their bottoms higher than the shores and make stop of all this solid glow. Strength should be lord to the stillity, and the rude sun should strike his father dead. This chaos, when he is suffocate, follows the choking. And you see in him there what I thought was really cool was he talks about discord and harmony while harm being sort of the next opposite of discord. Something that you get a lot in the text, Neo Marxist, is this idea of music. 
there's this other oppositional force I think is way more important for Shakespeare than nature and society, because I think for Shakespeare, nature and society exist as part of a grander order, like the metaphysical structure of all things that exist and that there is a harmonious relationship between these things when all is ordered properly and that allows people to flourish and that will necessarily include things seen as natural and also things seen as unnatural like good art making things nice whether that be plowing the field so that there is like a harvest and so on like all of these things are one thing and chaos and disorder are what they always threaten to erupt into if the proper order and hierarchy and degree are ever seen um, essentially being overturned. That human action can kind of invite a greater cosmic destruction or at least the destruction of society. And that this oppositional force, at least some could claim would have been the foremost on people's minds in terms of when thinking about these things. And, you know, it's something that comes up in The Tempest a lot is Ariel, the primary spirit that Prospero controls, is constantly playing music to lull people or to bring them to this place or that place, or even to make them think in the first place that the island might be a nice place is because they hear Ariel's music that he's sort of playing distantly. And it's you know, like the last thing I'll pull from this book was just this section where they write that ever since the early Greek philosophers, creation had been figured as an act of music. And the notion appealed powerfully to the poetically or mystically minded. As late as 1687, Dryden gave its best known rendering in English poetry, keeping strictly to the old tradition. From harmony, from heavenly harmony, the universal frame began when nature underneath a heap of jarring atoms lay and could not heave her head, the tuneful voice was heard from high, arise ye more than dead, then cold and hot and moist and dry in order to their stations leap and music's power obey from harmony, from heavenly harmony, this universal frame began from harmony to harmony through all the compass of the notes it ran, the diapason, the diapason closing full in man. Which, all that just to kind of get background to say that for me, one of the most problematic aspects of a lot of this thinking is the fact that it collapses the activities of man into their own ontologically separate sphere. I don't know how you feel about this. I have a lot more personal sympathy for a view of these things that tends to see them more monistically. And I think that... Well, that's the Aristotelian in you, right, John? <laughs> you know, I think yeah, that's, like, that's where we're butting up. Sort of, to break the mold of, like, confining myself to just talking about these chapters, like, we'll see where they go, but here's where the chapters, like, brought me in all this reading, back to thinking about Shakespeare and kind of what you could call like a more organic vision of society and the universe as being distinct from each other, but being sort of inherently in a harmony. And that human activity at its best, especially when it's engaged in like a technique or an art, is inherently at harmony with the things around it. Um, I think it's a viewpoint with a lot more promise for like human endeavor. Well, I as, think we're going to get there in this as we get closer to Emerson. Right. Like that's, and I think that'll be an interesting thread to follow. But I was just 
I was happy we got there in this book already because it's something that's often elided. Usually you're just forced to take one position or another across this divide of like, either you're romantically with nature or you're progressively against nature. You know what I mean? Like, well, that, I mean, that's sort of the, yeah, that's really one of the difficult debates that we're having now. And I think we can sort of see certain people's inability to think through that at all with sort of the rabid commitment to renewables, which also just like destroy land. Right. Like and also like, yeah, and also like throw the built order into disharmony. Right. And so I think that we can sort of see inheriting a strict dichotomy and it's, I'm glad that we have this sort of like pendulum language or these sort of competing forces that can overlap, but also uh, shed light on each other from Leo Marx, because I think it gives us a more sophisticated way to try to puzzle out our relationship to the natural world and what it means to be human ultimately, right? Like, so pantheism, which is sort of the idea that we're one with nature is for the post-Christian, like after the advent of Christianity in the West is, is seen as a heresy. But it does at certain times create this admixture with Christian thought in the West that is looking for a helpful way to understand our relationship to nature as one not of domination nor of primitivism, but of dominion and responsibility and harmony. And there are already competing claims to what that's supposed to actually look like. But I think Leo Marx is already putting us at a better vantage from which to view those issues. I definitely agree. Overall, pretty excited about the project. I think going in, knowing nothing about the book, having like as much skepticism as I do about anything that I'm kind of unfamiliar with. I was fairly impressed with the way in which he handled the Tempest and what he used it. The concepts that he used it to bring us to are pretty, hopefully pregnant with possibility, I will say, because it, I think like you said, with pretty much anything that people talk about in the public sphere, i.e. like Twitter or whatever, it has essentially collapsed into like two points of view, which more or less exist solely to signal to their adherents and supporters that you're a part of this group yes. and to its enemies that, you know, we despise you. Like, it's more to it than that. It's just kind of like anti-intellectual to the point of like thinking is impossible. Yeah, exactly. Um, and there's no, there's no median, as Leo Marx says, right, to sort of hop onto where he describes like the Tempest ending in this median between nature and art. And to him, that's the pastoral design. Right. Is that if the pastoral is going to exist at all as this idea, it is actually the, this admixture of these two things. It is neither fully one or the other. Right. I thought that completely impossible unless you leave the confines of contemporary debate behind utterly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. 
So I just want to end, I think he ends it on a really strong paragraph here since we've brought up pastoral design and pastoral idea, ideal. Um, and this this will be sort of the teaser for what's coming in the next episodes and of the next chapters. By the way, the link to purchase this book or any of the others that we've talked about, the Into the White book or the Elizabethan World Picture uh, will be available in the show notes. Um, so Leo Marx writes in this concluding paragraph for the second chapter, the pattern is remarkably like the pattern of our typical American fables. So this is the pattern of the median that gets developed by the end of the tempest that we were just talking about. To be sure, many of them do not arrive at anything like the resolution of the tempest. The American hero successfully makes his way out of society, but in the end, he is often further than Prospero from envisaging an appropriate landscape of reconciliation. Nevertheless, the tacit resolution is much the same. Prospero's island community prefigures Jefferson's vision of an ideal Virginia, an imaginary land free both of European oppression and frontier savagery. The topography of the Tempest anticipates the moral geography of the American imagination. What is most prophetic about the play, finally, is the singular degree of plausibility that it attaches to the notion of a pastoral retreat. By making the hope so believable, Shakespeare lends singular force to its denial. The Tempest may be read as a prologue to American literature. So I think we will end it there for this episode. We hope you guys enjoyed it. There is more to come. Of course, there are more interviews and things like that on the Nuclear Barbarians Horizon as well. So don't worry about that. That is not going anywhere as part of our programming. But for now, stay sharp, stay strong, and stay radiant. We will see you next time.